Scuttlebutt is a Portland Media Center production. It's the story of a young man and his island home after his return from World War II. Hosted by Leslie McVean. Author, Donnie McVean. Reader, Roger Burley. And music, Scuttlebutt, courtesy of Chuck Romanoff. Over and over, day after day, coming and going like ever before. Gossip be so ugly, try as you may, it comes in your window and out of your door. Scuttlebutt, ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Scuttlebutt. I'm Leslie McVeigh, and I'm pleased to have with me for this first podcast the author of the book Scuttlebutt, Donnie McVeigh. Donnie is a recently retired lobsterman from Long Island, Maine. And complete disclosure, he's a cousin of mine. His grandfather, Captain Charles McVeigh, and my great grandfather, Captain John McVeigh, we're Long Island Sea Captains. Welcome, Donnie. Thank you. Well, um, I'd like to have our listeners know a little bit about you. I mean, now they know you're an author because we're going to be doing a reading of your book. But that wasn't your life's um, primary work, was it? No, no. I, I was a lobsterman for 75 years. But... Uh, I don't know if you, they call you an author if you haven't sold anything. <laughs> well, I, I think you're an author. You've, you've, you're working on book number five, and you've... Working on, yeah. Well, I, 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 every time I finish one, I say, nah, I'm not going to do anymore, and then two days later, I haven't got anything to do, so I sit down and start writing again. Well, you retired from fishing, from lobstering, Three years ago, at the age of 90? It was uh, near three years yep. ago. Yep, and you were 90 at the time. You're 93 yep. now. Yep. And in those three three years, you've written four and almost five. You haven't quite yeah, finished I, I, the I'm fifth. almost finished on the fifth one. Yeah. So um, tell me why, you know, you grew up on Long Island. Yeah. And um, tell me about a little bit about the fishing history of your family. Uh, uh, yeah. My father was a was a longliner, trawler, uh-huh. who hung on trawling long after the it was uh, passe was gone. The, 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 it was the drag of boats were catching the fish, not not trawlers. Mm-hmm. And uh, he stayed with it. My, I, I can still remember my mother talking about him. Henry, you ought to get going and get some lobster traps and go lobster fishing. Jim Floyd goes lobstering, and he they go to Florida winters. <laughs> and she wanted to have that kind of a life, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. She, she was, she figured there must be money in it. If they... So he wasn't the first fisherman in your family. You, Captain Charles, you your oh yeah, oh yeah. He was your a grandfather. He, he was a uh, fisherman, and my father was a fisherman. 
I I suspect probably Charles Senior, Charles's father, was a fisherman. I but I'm not. I'm never really caught up to him. I, I to know what he was doing. Right. We can look at the family history for that. But now you have children and grandchildren who are fishermen. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's a long line of McVeigh fishermen on Long Island. Yeah. So um, you you used to go out every day, pretty yeah, much. Every, every every day, but Sunday. Yeah. And did you always have a stern man with you, or? I, always when I tried to have a stern man, sometimes they they didn't show up. But, but you had pretty good ones over the yeah, years. Yeah, the good ones were always there. Yeah. And and what what are some of the things that people might know about being out on the water all day long? I mean, hauling things. Your lifeline was kind of the the what your uh, your what, what's the what do they call that that you talk to walkie talkie kind of thing? Oh yeah, to yeah. talk to the other fishermen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they used to call it the, the button dawn show. <laughs> Because uh, it was funny, right? I mean, yeah, you yeah. a lot of stuff went down on that okay, on that yeah, microphone, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Can you remember any of the really funny things that might have people? Oh, there were funny things. There were lots of them, but I can't remember. Yeah, some of the the people on shore were, or the wives. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> the, the women on the shore were always talking about. Oh, I always watch the Bud and Dawn show. I always <laughs> listen to it. <laughs> so, couldn't watch it. Uh, so you were the comedy show for the oh island. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bud, was, Bud was a perfect straight man. <laughs> well, tell us, um, you know, what when you started to write. I mean, it was before you retired. You, you were writing for the island news, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, I've been writing that for... 30 years. <coughs> Excuse me. So what um, What do you write when you write that? I try to write stories about island people. Uh-huh. But I've, used, <laughs> I've used them all many, many times. <laughs> but I always re- rewrite them, so they're, they're different. Yeah. So, so when you retired and thought, okay, now's my chance to write that book. Yes. Um, how did it come about? What what? I mean, it's about I, an I, island. Yeah. And in Casco Bay. Yeah. A fictional island, but tell us a little bit about why. Why you chose this topic and and the time frame of World War II, just after the war. When I was forty five years old. I was in at the lobster market, and I went up. We're going up the the ladder, and there was a man up there. Took my picture, and right in my face, and it startled me, and I fell off the ladder, broke my ankle. Oh, so I'm laid up. Well, what do you do when you're laid up in bed or, or sitting in the sofa? Uh, well, writing was easy to do, so I started writing, and longhand. Right, no computer back then. No, no computer back then, and I, I wrote a lot. I, and the original story was 
Well, it was parts of it were the same as in Scuttle, but it, it was a totally different. Uh, in fact, every if if I when I tried to read, when we had a reading, when I tried to read the story, I couldn't because I was the same time I'm trying to read it, I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to work on it. So so once your ankle healed, you went back to fishing and the, Oh yeah, and once the my ankle was better then then I got drifted back into the lobstering and the writing. I did a little bit of writing but not much and then slowly it I stopped. It kind of went got in a drawer and that's where it stayed. For forty forty some odd years. <laughs> forty seven years or forty six years I I, I I didn't do any writing, and then and then I retired from Lovestrug, and it was something to do. I remember you telling me when I asked you, now what are you going to do? You said, I've got a book I've, I'm going to pull out and see what I can come up with after yeah. all these years. Yeah. And you certainly did. It's, it's an interesting book I've read. And um, tell me how close to some of the situations in your life is this book. I mean, there are characters there that you've probably put together from all kinds of characters from the islands. We, uh, when I, uh, when my, when my kids came of age to go to college, all of a sudden I had four kids in college. <laughs> it seemed like all of a sudden. And Winter lobstering is, at that time, was for the birds. And so I, 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 had a, I had a place right on the end of the dock where the fish boats would come in to unload the shrimp. And boat after boat after boat that with draggers would unload baskets of lobsters. I, I'd go out and haul and get... 26 pounds, and they and they got 200 dragging against the law to, to bring them in, but they, they they got away with it. So I said, ah, they're going to go lobster, sell lobsters. I'm going to go shrimping. So I rigged my boat out to go shrimping <laughs> and did very well. Helped pay for college and braces on teeth and so forth. And some trips to Florida. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, and even trips to Florida. <laughs> so a lot of a lot of this, um, you know, the characters are so rich in this story, and so um, interesting. Um, and some of them are you, I think. You're what you've learned over the years. I mean, you went, you were in the military for a while, um, and. Uh, that, yeah, we write what we know, right? Yeah. Yeah. So th these new books that you have coming after Scuttlebutt are takeoffs from that? Are they? It's kind of similar, you know. Yeah. You write about what you know. Right. Yeah. So some of the characters are more oh, yeah. prominent in these yeah. new books. Yeah. Try to use the uh, some of the characters. From, from the island, some of the ones that have got stories connected with them. So would you like to give our listeners just a little 
teaser about the book, like um, maybe one of the char- like Manly, the main character. Yeah, um, Man- Manly and and and, and Spurmer is right there, close. Yeah, he sure but, is. You know, I I I would say the two main characters are Manly and Spurmer. They mm-hmm. uh, they're best best friends. Been best friends since the sub. So, uh, primary school or kindergarten, we call, used to call it sub-primary in my day. Uh, and I'm moving away from the microphone, aren't I? You stay right in that microphone, we'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> the, the, the two boys always talked about being lobster fishermen. And when Manly was to, came home from the Navy... Uh, Spurman was waiting, and, and they were ready to start, but they didn't have any money. Uh, they had, like, I think between them, they had, like, $238 or something. And, and even back then, it cost a lot of money to, to, to be a fisherman. And they were lucky in a lot of, in a lot of ways, everything was, was, was in their favor. And it's it's kind of a, it's a fun book, really. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a very simple book. Not it's not uh, not uh, high reading. Or well, that's it's sort of you know like an island. You know, it's a simple mm-hmm. story, and and um, scuttlebutt is is it means um, gossip, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's, you know, small communities, um, whether they're an island or, or not, um, there's always a lot of gossip going on in, in a community like that. It, yeah, well, the name of the town that they live in, on the, that, that, it's really, it's not an island. It's, it's cut off from the mainland, but it's not an island. Mm-hmm. It's the end of a peninsula. And... It's it's a very difficult place to get to or get to come from, uh, and and that's the way they like it. Yeah, alone in a way, and not having anyone tell them what to do. It's, in a way, it's a remote island. That's it. As you read the book, you realize how how how, how hard it is to, to to live there, yeah. and how expensive it is to to live in such a place. Well, and you you grew up and lived your life on Long Island and, and generations of your family there. And that's a unique island um, in that it seceded from the city of Portland, yeah. what, uh, 25 or 30 years ago, quite a while ago. Yes, 30 and, years now. Yeah, and, um, you know, people at first thought, oh, really, you, you can't do that. But you did it, and you've been successful at being your own town. Yeah. And that's that's that island spirit that just doesn't give up. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Yeah. Uh, when, when Long Island seceded from the city of Portland, it was kind of unheard of. It hadn't happened in, in, I don't know, for 15, 20 years, 30 years in, in the state of Maine that any 
part had, had separated from another part. And it, this worked out very well. I was a, I happened to be a, elected a selectman in the, in the first, first uh, election. And uh, it, we had no town hall. We had no place for a town hall. I, I offered a, a shed I had for a town hall. <laughs> uh, we had no money, absolutely zero money. Uh, the two other selectmen and I signed off a, on a loan for uh, $15,000. That's what the town had for, for to working capital. And, and, of course, we had to hire people for the work in the town, town hall that we hadn't even had, had, had done. And, uh, it was fun. Yeah. It was really a lot of fun. And now it's 30 years later and going oh, yeah. strong. I, uh, I rode down there uh, Sunday down to the waterfront uh, and where the, where the ferry comes in. And, and I said to my son Stan, who was driving, uh, I said, boy, we sure have changed some in the last 30 years. From uh, Now it's a, it's a going community. It's, it's done very well. The, Taxes are good. Uh, the services are wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that kind of in the book some. Yeah. Well, and unlike the book, you've got a nice new fire engine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fun, it's fun to write. Mm-hmm. It would be fun if people read it. <laughs> well, we're going yeah, to see if, what if we it, can do we, about that. If, if, if you could find out that it's good enough for people to like to read it, then, then, then you'd be a successful writer, I guess. <laughs> but it, it has to be interesting enough for, for them to read it. Well, I think it's interesting enough to be doing this podcast. And now we are going to have um, begin part one of Scuttlebutt. And it's going to be read by Roger Burley, who is a Cliff Islander. So thank you, Donnie. Thank, thank you, Leslie. It's been fun. It's been great fun. I, I've, been, I've been kind of hating the thought of this. It's, been, it's just been a nice conversation. Yeah, and we haven't been able to do that because of the virus, have yeah. we? Well, I yeah. enjoy it, and we hope to have you on again. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. You'll agree, just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me. Scuttlebutt by Donnie McVean, read by Roger Burley, part one. Scuttlebutt. Watching the city of Norfolk slowly retreat gave him the sensation that he always felt at that instant feeling that he was still and that the landscape was moving. As the train picked up speed, Manly Moore found it difficult to believe that the day before yesterday he had been in San Diego on the other side of the country. His first ride on an airplane opened his eyes to a new way to travel. Riding in a stripped-down bomber was not possibly what you'd ever call comfortable, but to save three or four days' leave, 
he'd have ridden on a bed of nails. He also thought that Lieutenant Erg, taking him in hand and obtaining a ride for them, was a grand gesture of shipboard companionship. The young officer wished him good luck and left them at the railroad station. He then ran and boarded a train for Pittsburgh. When Manley reached Boston, he got nervous that he'd get lost going from South Station to North Station. He asked a few questions when an elderly lady, feeling at her duty, led him to the right place to catch his next ride. It seemed everyone took it as an honor to assist a serviceman. Afternoon found him on an express train bound for Portland, Maine. Sitting in the hurrying train, Manley, despite his desire to bury his problem, kept seeing those shore patrol sailors closing in on him. After what the captain of his ship had told him, there was no way he could escape a captain's mast. Then, surprisingly, he was granted a 30-day leave. That was the day before yesterday, and he figured traveling would surely eat into his leave. Now it looked as if he'd be home tonight with most of his 30-day leave still intact. He took a staggering walk to the dining car and enjoyed his Welsh rarebit and Coca-Cola that a young black man insisted on paying for. He could hardly wait to get home. Thinking of home, his mind flashed to Joy Falkingham, and the last night before his boot camp leave was up. She had accepted a ride home from him and even sat in the coal truck for a short time after they stopped at her house. She talked mostly about her twin brother, Lester. They recently had gotten word that he was wounded in action. Manley remembered only too well his feeble answer. He sat there just tongue-tied, and the only words he spoke were, I'm sorry, good night. He had thought or dreamed of her most of his life. Why couldn't he open up to her? Why was he such an ass when he was around her? The possibility that some man might sweep her off her feet and carry her off gave him a sick feeling. He knew he could talk to other people but why, in heaven's name, was he such a dunce around joy? The taxi driver who drove him to Halftown refused to accept payment. Manley was getting kind of accustomed to this. With sea bag banging the back of his legs, he ran for the ferry. Catching that ferry on what had to be the last run of the day was all that mattered. The ferry crew saw him coming and waited for him to jump aboard. His Uncle Henry Cousins, the captain, wrapped his arms around him and gave him a solid squeeze. Welcome home, Manley. Good to see you, my boy. The deckhand, Harvey Longstreet, who had been untying the boat, burst into the pilot house. He hugged Manley with as much enthusiasm as the captain had shown. Like everyone in their hometown of Scuttle, they had heard that Manley was wounded in action and there were some glad to see him. Manley assured him that his slight wound was all healed. He also told them that as soon as he was discharged, he and Spermus Holmes were going lobstering. His uncle thought that a fine idea, but what Harvey thought, he could not fathom. Harvey's birth had stretched out way too long, and part of his brain suffered from lack of oxygen. He was apparently healthy in all respects, but his speech, 
Luckily, the captain, Henry, somehow could interpret everything he said. It was a short mile from the dock and half town to Scuttle, so there wasn't a lot of time for talk on the ferry. Mom wrote you that you now have a boss that runs on low tide. That must be it, back there by the pier. Is that working out? Well, as long as it ain't too rough, you know, with the slosh all the way up to the rocks. We're in good shape, and it works fine. The last few years, the company's actually made a little money, and with no war, it should get even better. Walking up the scuttle dock, Manley was pleasantly surprised to find his father, Gainley, sitting on a Model A Ford truck that had begun life as a car with a rumble seat. When questioned by Manley, he admitted that between he and Manley's mother, they'd been meeting almost all the ferry and bus trips for a week. Gosh, I'm sorry, Dad. Should have called. If you knew Gainley Moore, you'd know when he said, don't even think about it, son, that he meant every word. He was anxious to talk about anything to do with the war and his son's wound. It took some convincing before Gainley accepted the fact that Manley was completely recovered from his minor wound. It was difficult for Manley to talk about a ricochet in the tail as if it was a real wound. In fact, the mention of the subject embarrassed him. Making things as easy as he could, Gainley drove home even though Manley would have felt safer doing the driving. The fact that Gainley had never even got a scratch in all his years of driving didn't matter. He never seemed to pay attention at all to where he was going, nor to the other cars on the road. When they drove into the yard, all was quiet, but within seconds of Manley opening the truck door, his mother came at a run. Oh, Manley, all grown up and you're finally home. We've all missed you so much. She hated to let go of him. They walked into the house with Gainley carrying the sea bag and truly hand in hand with her son. For a family that had trouble showing their feelings, it sure was a heartfelt homecoming. His mother didn't appear to have aged at all in the 20 months he'd been gone. She still looked much too young to be Manley's mother. I sure am glad to be here, Mom. I only wish they could have discharged me now, but you know how they are. You've got to go back there, Manley. Gainley got a word in as wise. Yeah, Dad, I'm in a 30-day leave. Manley gave a hollow laugh. And I expect it'll be all right back here. Go to San Diego, get back here, and get discharged. He had decided that nothing would be gained by bringing up the Navy command car incident that he'd face up to after his leave was up. Was the food decent, Manley? His mother knew what a picky eater he was. Did you get enough to eat? Take a good look at me, ma. Wouldn't you think I'm pretty well fed? Manley spoke with a real grin. Mom, you wouldn't believe it, but they put onions in baked beans, and I'm ashamed to admit I ate some. They weren't too bad if you didn't have to look at them. First time I saw them, they made me right sick. I was in chow line, and the guy held the ladle over my tray with onions hanging like snot. It was an awful sight. Well, I never, said truly. What's going on in Scuttle? Manley thought they might have news of joy. Pretty dead for this time of year, I'd say. Looks as if it will take a long time to get over the war. Wouldn't you agree, lovey-dove? Gainley sat up straight. Holy Moses, 
That's the first time in my life I've ever been called that. But I'm not one bit surprised. Is it more like I move like a dog? Or is it that I coo like one? Well, they all got a laugh out of that one. My only news is there's nothing new in the lobster business. Gainley was not a gossiper. Mr. Lister told me that they expect Joy home any day now. She had to stay at school because of her job at the college library. He truly was looking at her son as she spoke. Doesn't seem possible that she's going to be a junior next year. Manley was mystified as to how his mother could zero in on like this uh, when he was never, had never even mentioned Joy's name. How's her brother doing? Any better? Not from what I gather. Mr. Lister talks with Lester's father, and the tell is that he hasn't spoken a word since he was wounded. He's just a vegetable. She grasped a nearby dish towel and held it to her lovely, expressive face. Poor devils. It's got to be terrible for the family. I feel so sorry for them. He was such a nice boy and so polite. Well, that wasn't quite the way her son remembered him. He remembered him as a devil-may-care, do-anything boy, who was a ringleader in a lot of their wild escapades. My, you had a wicked long day. Would you and my dad excuse me so that I can go to bed? Wouldn't you like a bite to eat before you go? We had roast chicken for supper. I can make you a sandwich. That sounds awful good, man, but I'm too darn tired. I'll see you guys in the morning. Standing in an open doorway, one hand on the screen latch, she spoke again. Dad, you want to haul tomorrow? I'm available. Thanks, son. We'll see. Manly headed for the shed that had been his bedroom since his high school days. End of Part 1, Scuttlebutt by Donnie McVeigh, read by Roger Burley. Scuttlebutt, ain't it a shame? Nobody knows, nobody's to blame. The truth ain't pretty, I think you'll agree. Just don't you tell nobody that you heard it from me.